Thinking back about 10 years or so ago, I can vividly remember my father's retirement ceremony. He had worked 40 plus years for the same company. He was a truck driver for Community Coffee. He had spent those 40 plus years getting up at O'Dark 30, going down to the plant, packing up and heading out. Well, after his retirement ceremony, I asked him, Pop, what do you plan to do now that you retired? I asked him that question because I can envision myself traveling, golfing, fishing, and doing things of that nature on a very regular basis once I retire. He told me that he was going to do, quote, whatever he felt like doing, unquote. Well, fast forward to today. My dad still gets up at old dark 30 sometimes. And not only that, I think he works just as much today as he did then. But today he's doing all kinds of stuff like auto repair, maintenance and detailing, lawn service and repair, things of that nature. I asked him, Pop, why do you do all of that working? He said, to keep busy. I was bored being retired. Well, what I have come to find out is that working after retirement is very common for many individuals after their initial retirement. I've even found this to be the case among the ranks of our teachers and members. If you plan to work in a position covered by TRS after you retire, it's very important that you know all of the stipulations associated with doing so. Also, you will want to notify TRS of your plans immediately. In today's episode, Christy Gray, the Operations Manager for the Working After Retirement section in the Retirement Services Division, will be joining us to share the rules, limits, and other pertinent information regarding re-retirement. I think you'll find her interview to be very interesting. So stay tuned to TRS, your retirement in focus. On the road to retirement, one of the most important decisions you can make is who will receive the benefits of your retirement account beyond your lifetime. With Teacher Retirement System of Georgia, your beneficiaries are not decided by documents like wills, divorce, decrees, or marriage certificates. Rather, they're determined only by the beneficiary information on file at TRS when you pass away. Therefore, it's critical that you designate at least one primary beneficiary and one secondary, as well as routinely update your TRS beneficiaries to reflect significant life changes, such as divorce, marriage, births, and deaths. Reminder, beneficiary designation completed with HR does not transfer over to TRS. This includes changes during open enrollment. Also, keep in mind that if you don't have the right person or persons on file, it can lead to costly legal problems and unnecessary frustration. Likewise, if you are the beneficiary on file at the time of a retiree's death, it is imperative that you notify TRS as soon as possible. That's why it's so important that you designate your beneficiaries now. The good news? It's easy to do. Simply log into your TRS account and visit the Designate Beneficiary section to complete the form. And as always, we're here to help you along the way. So here's to good planning and to the road ahead. Joining me today is Christy Gray, the Operations Manager for the Working After Retirement section of the Retirement Services Division at TRS. Christy, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing much better today than I was on yesterday, so no complaints on my end. Great. All right, let's just jump right into it. So what does the Working After Retirement Department of TRS actually do, and what are the functions of that area? Well, the Working After Retirement section actually does a variety of different things, but it's mostly all related to employment of retirees for the most part. 
we analyze and evaluate and process approvals or denials for employment for our TRS retirees based on Georgia law, um, TRS policies and procedures. And that goes through a range of different types of things, including employment for service, disability retirees, which may also tear down into part-time employment, full-time employment, contractual or temporary employment. And um, we also perform audits on individual accounts when it comes to employment, as well as we have performed some system audits as well. We will process suspensions and terminations of retirement benefits. And we can we will take people off of payroll for multiple reasons. Suspension is one of them, termination another, a cancellation of a retirement, as well as a disability denial accounts where we have to remove them because they're no longer disabled. Our other processes range from re-retirement calculations to re, um, recalculation of benefits estimate of benefits, our um, active membership establishment, which is putting somebody into the system as an active member, restoring accounts with contribution and interest. We have a wide range of different types of um, duties and functions that we process on a routine basis. Wow, I see you You guys are actually, you're in the running for busiest department at TRS. I'm, I'm not kidding you, that's a handful. It is. It's a lot that we do, and our functions a lot of times cross over into other areas where that may be their main staple. It's just a part of what we do. Okay. So what are the rules for retirees who want to return to work? Individuals who want to return to work can return to work in different capacities, and it really does depend on what type of employment they're trying to perform. Um, for part-time employment, as long as the individual is working in a capacity that's less than 49% or less than um, the full-time compensation and the full-time schedule for the position, that will allow them to receive an approval from us for working in a part-time capacity, as well as salary limits. We, we also have to um, acknowledge the salary limits just based on the law. And each individual have their own salary limit based on their compensation that they earn at retirement that we will calculate once we receive an employment verification for their account. Okay, I see. Go ahead. No, go right ahead. And yes, uh, we have multiple different types of employment. So it's kind of hard to sum that one up um, because the rules are different for each type of employment. Full-time has its own set of rules. Temporary has its own set of rules, substitute, and so on, and especially contractual employment with independent contracting, which definitely um, those employees cannot, well, they're not regular employees. They can't be deemed a regular employee of, the, of that system, and the role that they perform their contractual duties up under cannot be a regular employment role that the system normally hires regular employees for. Understood. So does the one-month break apply to only TRS-covered employment? Okay, a better way to say that is that the one-month break applies to all employment up under a TRS employer. So that TRS-covered employer, once the retiree accepts employment with them, they must adhere to the one-month break. There are small exceptions to this rule. One example is a person who retires from a local board of education system, and they go to work with 
a Board of Regents employer or a Technical Institute employer, if that retiree is eligible for full-time employment and enrolls in employee's retirement system or in the optional retirement plan up under the Board of Regents, then that individual does not have to take a one-month break for that type of employment. But for everything else, there's a one-month break that is required just based on the way that the law is written. I see. What what would happen if a retiree, you know, what would happen if they violated that one-month break in service? Well, if the retiree violates the one-month break in service, then their retirement date has to be modified. They will also incur an overpayment. Either the employer or the retiree has to pay it back, as well as um, that they still have to take a one-month break at that point in time. So it's a potential to move that retirement date back a lot further than what that person really wanted if they, if they are continuing employment because they still have to honor the one month break. So according to the law, the person has to have a, a severance from their employment with the employer. And if they don't adhere to the one month break, then there's not a severance there. Well, I know our listeners have heard me say this on more than one occasion. Once I'm retired, I don't want anything. I don't want absolutely anything hindering my retirement when I do it. So I would imagine that folks are extra careful uh, with regard to doing all they have to do to not have their uh, retirement interrupted, per se. Yes, I would say that, you know, 99, 98% of the cases, retirees are definitely vigilant about the one-month break. Um, but there are ones that do, they, they occur. Um, but we want to make sure that people don't incur these penalties as well as the overpayment. As well, if you change a person's retirement date, it's a potential for them to miss out on COLA cycles, which can have an ongoing or a, a comprehensive impact on their retirement benefits for the long haul. Very true, very true. So what is a pre-existing agreement and how does TRS know if it's been violated or not? A pre-existing agreement is really just a verbal or written agreement that a person is coming back to work with that particular employer, whatever TRS covered employer actually. If a retiree engages in this type of conversation with an employer prior to them terminating their employment with them and retiring, then that is considered a pre-arranged agreement. And if they violate the prearranged agreement, it's very similar to the one-month break where they're not allowed to retire at that period of time. Um, it, it could incur penalties such as overpayments or moving retirement dates as well. Who is responsible for reporting return to work to TRS? The employer is responsible for reporting all employment to TRS. However, there is a caveat to this disability retirees. Our disability retirees can work with private sector employers and all of that employment must be reported to TRS as well. And so therefore our disability retirees have to report it. What kind of employment requests do you receive the most from retirees? The most, we, we get part-time part-time employment the most um, and then probably a close second is substitute employment. Those kind of go hand in hand. So let's switch gears to re-retirement. What exactly is re-retirement? A re-retirement 
is a person who has retired before and they want to come out of retirement and they want to come back into active membership, which is in a capacity of 50% or greater. And we consider that as full-time employment for us where the person can accrue additional service credit. So this individual will, will work uh, full-time and contribute to the system just as our regular members are contributing. They will receive service credit. They have to have a minimum of four months in order for them to re-retire. And throughout that process, they have to submit an online application for, re for re-retirement just as a person who's just retiring for the first time. So they go through the whole procedure of submitting all of their documentation and signing off on a new application for them to retire. And we calculate their benefit. We will recalculate their benefit based on this additional service that's rendered during this period of re-employment. What would happen in an instance if an individual could not work the required time? What would be the consequence to that? If a person cannot meet the obligation of the four months, then we will consider their time as being suspended instead of, instead of terminated. We will reinstate their benefits at the exact amount that they were receiving beforehand. They would not get service credit for that time frame that they were employed, and they would not get retirement benefits for that time that they were employed either. So um, it's almost like just being in a suspended state, which is another option for people to, um, to take. Well, can a person who re-retires purchase service or take a plot? Yes, they can. So a person who, is, who will be a re-retiree has all of the same rights and, and uh, regulations that's for an active member. So they can engage in purchasing service as well as taking a plot. It's just that for re-retirees, if they do not pay back their retirement benefits, the plot is only on the active membership. It's not across the board, across all of their years of service. So a person who um, chooses to purchase service, they would go through the same process of requesting a cost calculation that we would provide either from member services or from, our, or from the working at the retirement area. And that individual would have the same allotted timeframes to pay it back. And all payments have to be um, performed before the person retires again. Okay, a minute ago, you mentioned uh, the suspended state, if you will. Relative to suspended retirement and terminating, what is terminating versus suspended retirement? Well, termination is, um, as I've just mentioned, where they become active members again. They contribute to the system and accrue service credit, whereas suspension is really a person putting their retirement on hold. So it's in a limbo state where there's no cost of living increases, no adjustments or anything. They can't choose another um, beneficiary. They can't choose another retirement plan or any of those options that a person would have up under a termination where they're electing everything all over again. So suspension is literally just holding that retirement benefit on, on hold for the time frame that the person comes back to work. They will not contribute to teacher's retirement during that period of time. They will not accrue service credit. There is no recalculation of benefits. They cannot purchase service and they can't go back and take like a plop or anything like that. Okay, let's talk about TRS employment. Can a disability retiree work after retirement? 
Yes, a disability retiree can work at the retirement. There are certain limitations, though, and specifically salary limitations. Um, we don't have a time frame limitation, such as the number of hours other than our part-time hourly employees um, ab abiding by those restrictions. But the disability retiree must submit their employment to teachers' retirement so we can determine what their salary limit is and determine whether or not they are within the guidelines to continue to receive their retirement benefits while working. Um, also, there are restrictions related to the disability in and of itself. If they were disabled from a certain type of job based on their disability, then um, we can request that they go back through the re-exam process to see if that person is still disabled in that capacity, um, if, especially if this is going to be something that'll be a full-time position or ongoing position. What is non-TRS covered employment versus TRS covered employment? So our non-TRS covered employment is really private employment when we talk about, especially when we talk about disability. So an individual who goes and work for any private entities such as Target, Walmart, or the healthcare system, anything that's not covered under, under um, the state of Georgia, they pretty much, is, that is considered non-TRS covered. However, the state of Georgia can be uh, um, an option as well that's not non-covered when you're talking about regular state employment, such as working for a Department of Human Services, such as DFACS. A, an individual can leave a TRS covered role and go to work with them and elect not to contribute to TRS. And so therefore it's not TRS covered, it's up under a different retirement plan. The differences between what's covered and what's not really does depend on the entity and what they're offering for when it comes to the retirement plan and how many years of service our retiree may have. Would you mind sharing some examples of direct versus indirect TRS covered employment with our listeners? Sure, definitely. Direct versus indirect is really based on independent contracts. So independent contracts are individuals who are working with an entity to provide services to them that is not up under a regular employee role and does not go through their regular payroll system. They're really paid based on invoices that they submit to the employer and the employer um, pays them at, at that point in time, usually like once a month and sometimes quarterly. Um, and sometimes in one lump sum for that whole entire time frame that they are working for them when the range of services provided. The direct is when the independent contractor is directly engaged with the employer uh, with a one-on-one -on -one contractual agreement. Whereas indirect is when a, there's a subcontractor that is working up under the main contract. Um, so there's a, like a third party there. That company or individual is providing services to that TRS covered employer and um, is still considered up under our salary limitations and our um, policies that dictate the restrictions regarding independent contracting. Okay, very well. Does TRS have a policy on a retiree who volunteers? No, we don't have a, a policy, but we can say that volunteering is always a good thing for people to do. 
but just be mindful of how laws are written um, based on the IRS regulations and Department of Labor regulations. Um, like for instance, a person who volunteers their services to help out with um, possibly tutoring some students, that's allowable. But if you're volunteering to be a teacher, a teacher is not allowed to the role itself, volunteer for um, expanded time frames as a teacher. Once you start going into that, then you're looking at regular employment for those individuals. So you have to be mindful. That's the same tr is true also for teachers when it comes to independent contracting. There's very it's these little small little tidbits of rules here and there that make those type of options a little bit harder to um, to maneuver in between. However, volunteering is okay. We always caution just to make sure that it is volunteering and there's not any type of exchanging of services or funds or um, any other type of offerings to the individual who's providing the volunteering services. Okay. What's the difference between part-time salary and part-time hourly employment? Well, part-time salary is, it represents individuals who are paid a salary and it doesn't fluctuate. They're paid the same salary throughout the, the year, whether it's monthly or whether it's semi-monthly, it's the same compensation all throughout the year. Whereas a part-time hourly is based on our, an hourly wage and that individual's um, compensation will fluctuate based on the number of hours that they work and each month and generally fluctuates from one month to the next as far as the number of hours within that month that you can work. So their pay will fluctuate. You, you will see it go up and down um, throughout the time frame that they're employed. Well, can someone work multiple part-time employments? Is that allowable? Well, they can't work multiple part-time employments with, an employ with the same employer, but they can work multiple part-time employments with separate employers, meaning that they can work 49% with employer A and then go to employer B and work another part-time employment. I see. Okay. What's the difference between a classroom aide and a paraprofessional? The classroom aide is an old term that's actually in the law where the um, classroom aide is in the classroom assisting the teacher with performing duties of, of um, assisting students, of teaching, and possibly doing small groups and things of that nature. So they're in the classroom. Whereas a paraprofessional can be in the classroom or outside of the classroom. We have different levels of paraprofessionals throughout the school systems where they work at, they can uh, work in, in a classroom, but um, a lot of them also work as technical paraprofessionals. They work as media specialist paraprofessionals. There are even office paraprofessionals. So those individuals are limited to 49% versus what a classroom aide is. A classroom aide can work up to less than full time in a classroom setting receive pay without jeopardizing their retirement benefits, whereas a paraprofessional is limited to 49% if they are a retiree. Okay. A little while ago, a short while ago, you talked a little bit about independent contractors. Relative to TRS, what, what is required for those independent contractors? 
Well, TRS requires that the employer send over the contract, the full contract for us to review. The contract must have the date range in which the retiree um, plans to provide the services to the employer. The employer and the retiree must sign off on the contract and date it. It also has to have the amount of compensation that's exchanged for the services provided. The scope of service must be detailed enough um, for us to identify what type of employment it is, as well as just how the payment will be paid. Those are the requirements that we have for the independent contracting as far as what we review. The individual cannot work in a regular position that's normally paid through payroll. What is the policy for retirees returning to work as an adjunct professor? Individuals who return to employment and work in the capacity of an adjunct is allowable up under technical institutes as well as the Board of Regents employers. And there is a little bit of a difference, though, between the two. The Board of Regents um, adjuncts that come through are individuals who are usually um, paid a stipend for their services, a low stipend for their services, and they are providing some sort of research and things of that nature. They're they're a little bit different from their part-time professors as what they deem as part-time professors. So they the the adjuncts can work unlimited because their pay is so low, as well as they don't um, really um, teach in a classroom per se. They're usually doing research and things of that nature. Whereas the adjunct in the technical institute are literally part-time instructors or part-time professors, and they are limited to 49% period. And as well as the part-time professors up under the Board of Regents, those are limited to 49%. Okay, one more question before we wrap it up. If a member has a question about a position that doesn't fall into any of the job categories we've spoken about today, Should that member contact our office? Oh, definitely. We always recommend the employer or the retiree contact us regarding any employment that they um, look forward to engaging in um, and ask us to make sure that it's um, eligible as well as to make sure that they're not going into any type of situation that may jeopardize their retirement benefits. So they can always contact our office and, and we will go over any scenario that they may have. Very well. Christy, thank you so much again for taking time out of your busy schedule to stop by and uh, record with the podcast today. I know the information you shared today is going to be very helpful to a lot of our members. It's always helpful to me, especially during the interviews. I, I'm amazed at how much I learn and uh, discover as I'm doing them. And I want you to know that I really appreciate you taking the time to do so today. Oh, it was my pleasure, Everett. This is always an honor for me to be able to exchange information and provide people with the details that they're looking for. So it was always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. So there you have it, folks. Another edition of TRS, Your Retirement in Focus. Stay smart and stay safe.